Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 41 of the Physician Assistant Exam Review Podcast. This week we're going to continue our discussion of dermatology, covering disorder of the hair and nails, and some pigmentation issues of the skin. My name is Brian Wallace. I'm the host and creator here over at physicianassistantexamreview.com. You can find all of the notes over on the website. I highly recommend you check that out. I have everything listed out there for you. Pretty easy to search in the upper right-hand corner. There's a search box. And, of course, there is also uh, a content blueprint. You can just pull up and find all the old stuff. So definitely head over there. Check that out. And today we're going to be covering dermatology, which is what we've been on. We've been going week by week, topic by topic, moving through the blueprint. So we're going to pick up right away here and jump right into dermatology with our priming questions. What is the medical term for a fungal infection of a toenail? Could be fingernail too. What's the medical term for a fungal infection of a toenail? What are the patches of skin affected? I'm sorry, are the patches of skin affected in vitiligo well demarcated? Are the patches of skin affected in vitiligo well demarcated? And what group is most commonly affected by melasma? What group is most commonly affected by melasma? I'll give you a second to think those over. All right, so we're going to start off today with disorders of the hair and nails as we move through derm. The first one is going to be onchomycosis, which is a fungal infection of the toenail. We just did that question, so there's an easy answer right up front for you. You don't have to pay attention all that long. Onchomycosis. And the clinical presentation here, most of you are familiar with this. Uh, you get nail changes, most notably. The nail becomes thickened. It's kind of white, yellow, uh, or green. It looks kind of brittle. Uh, it can lift up off the nail bed. It's a, if you look at an image of it, it, it's pretty obvious when you see it, what it looks like. And again, most of you have seen this before, I would think. It's typically painless. doesn't usually cause any significant problem other than it looks kind of gross. Labs and studies here. You can do a KOH prep and you'll find the fungus. And I guess you could culture it if you really wanted to. Treatments. Treatment's a little funky for this. Uh, and again, this is something, I don't know why, this sticks in my head. It's just not super complicated. I don't think you're probably going to see it on your exam. But it's sort of easy to remember. There are systemic antifungals that, will, that are effective against the fungal infection of a toenail or a fingernail. Usually this is more common on the toenails, by the way. Just I think it has to do with the blood supply and how that gets affected. It's usually more common. I think it's like the third, fourth, and fifth toes. Uh, but again, this is all irrelevant information as far as your exam goes. It is more common in people with diabetes and that sort of thing. Again, just having to do with blood flow and, and uh, uh, issues there. So let's <laughs> hop back in, in to where we were with treatments. Treatments, there are systemic antifungals, right? And they are effective, but this usually doesn't cause a lot of problems. It just looks kind of gross. So these drugs are effective, but they can also cause hepatotoxicity. And obviously that's kind of an issue. Now they're short term, so it's not the end of the world, but it's just something to consider. Uh, definitely you want to consider. So the drugs there would be terbinafine and itraconazole. And I don't know that you're going to have to remember the names for those but certainly know that that's available and that that does cause hepatotoxicity. You can also use topical antifungals, but they're not as effective because they don't penetrate down to the nail bed. But apparently the new ones are getting better, so it's something to keep an eye on if you're in clinical practice. 
good hygiene is another thing uh, as far as keeping this from happening. Our next one is perinicchia. Perinicchia is an infection of the periungal area. <clears throat> I couldn't remember what periungal is. I sort of assumed what it was, but I didn't know it off the top of my head. So I pulled it up and it literally was the area next to the fingernail or toenail. Um, so it's a big fancy word meaning area around or next to the fingernail or toenail. So it's a little infection you can get there. It's most commonly caused by staph aureus. When patients come in, the, the they get a really nasty beet red, very painful, swollen area right where the nail meets the skin. And there can be a, like a little abscess in there. Uh, my latest experience with this was with my, I guess he was six at the time. My kid bites his fingernails down to the bone. I mean, he's just started bleeding from the tips of his fingernails, especially in the wintertime. It, and he, he cries and it's, it's, it's terrible because it's really painful and we can't get him to stop. So he bites his nails all the time. And one day he came down and this thing, he just had this nasty paranicky on the corner of his finger and it just was red and swollen and really painful. And there wasn't anything I could do at the time. So what I wound up doing, which was probably maybe not necessarily the right thing, at one point I could lift sort of, there was a little bubble on top and I could lift that off and then I could squeeze it and the pus would come out. And now this hurt a lot. I mean, there's no question about it. But you've got to get the pus out. That's a major, major key to any to, to clearing any infection like that. If the pus stays in there and it's and it's pus under pressure that causes that pain. So you can clear that. So I got the I squeezed and got the pus out. Like I said, he wasn't real thrilled about it, but he was happy because it felt a whole lot better when I was done. And then we got him on an antibiotic and it cleared it right up. I talked with the general surgeon a couple of days later and she was horrified that I had done this without any anesthetic. Um but we used some ice, and he's a pretty tough kid, so it wasn't too bad. But it uh, it's definitely something I, I he won't forget ever. Uh, so the, the number one treatment here is stop biting your nails. Warm soaks several times a day will certainly help. And then anti-staph antibiotics, so Cephalex and uh, the Cloxacil and that sort of thing will help to clear this up. And then an IND may be necessary, but you've got to get the pus out. That's a so that's a major key. Whenever I mean, again, that may not be something that's going to be in your exam, but in your clinical practice. If you've got something that's infected and there's any chance that there's pus in there and it's it's built up, you've got to get it out of there. So you need an, an IND. Moving on to hair alopecia, which is baldness, right? The most common cause is uh, androgenetic alopecia, which is male pattern or female pattern hair loss. I didn't realize how common it was. I think the the notes I came, <coughs> excuse me, the notes I came across said it's something like seventy percent of males um, will wind up with alopecia, and it's fifty percent of females which again, I was just, I didn't realize it was the numbers were that high. I knew that they were high, but uh, alopecia is broken down into two major categories, scarring and non-scarring. Scarring, scarring alopecia, uh, and at first that sounds like, well, geez, I don't know anything about that. It, it actually just means that you had some trauma. There was some sort of infection, radiation, scleroderma, or something else that caused those hair follicles to get, uh, to die, basically. And you've got scarring at the area. I had a good a friend of mine whose son was very, very sick and wound up in the ICU with all kinds of problems. And he was there for a very long time. And he wound up with a, a area of baldness on the back of his head just from having laid in one position for so long. It, it killed off the hair follicles in that area. So that'd be an example of scarring alopecia. Non-scarring alopecia, which is your, that's your androgenetic uh, baldness, the common kind that you're used to seeing. This also can occur with uh, hyperhypothyroidism, pituitary insufficiency, secondary syphilis, iron deficiency, and again, there's lots of other possible causes there. 
labs and studies, they do things called a pull test. Really, you're just grabbing the hair and pulling it to see how it, uh, how the roots are. The pluck test, which is we pluck out a couple of hairs so you can examine them under the microscope. You may need to do a biopsy just to confirm what the cause of this is. You could do testosterone levels, DHEAS levels, iron, thyroid panels, and a CBC. The treatment here, if it's androgenetic baldness, it's um, one is minoxidil, 5% solution applied BID. Finesteride, uh, which is Propecia. In females, oral contraception may be helpful to maintain hormone balances. Outside of that, it's going to be to treat the underlying causes. So if you have a, let's say you've got a fungal infection, right, causing some hair loss, we'll treat the fungal infection. Uh, treat the cause of the scarring. You can do some surgery. You can move the hair follicles around. And some laser therapy is another thing that was listed here. Pigment disorders. So the first one we're going to talk about is melasma. This is a dark brown areas of hyperpigmentation on the face, which have sharp margins. So you can, they're very well defined. You can see them very clearly. This most commonly affects females or women taking oral contraception. I'm sorry, pregnant females or women taking oral contraception. So you think about this in your 20 to maybe 40-year-old women, you get these um, patches of hyperpigmented skin on the nose, on the bridge of the nose, on the cheeks, on the forehead. It's also known as the mask of pregnancy. Now, I've never heard that in real life, but I have heard it in, in school. I do remember them mentioning it there. So just something that helps... It isn't that term that's going to show up on your test, but it's a, a different way of thinking about it that'll help you to retain that information. So these are dark brown areas of hyperpigmentation on the face with sharp margins, and they're most commonly affect females who are pregnant or taking oral contraception. Labs and studies, this is usually a clinical diagnosis, but you may use a woods light to help you uh, diagnose it. Treatment typically resolves on its own several months after pregnancy, or stopping the contraception, though it may not completely fade. So you, it will come in pretty dark, and then it'll fade out over time, but it may not completely go away. Sun exposure will make this worse, so avoiding sun exposure will make it better. Topical steroids may help. Chemical peels may help. And they do have laser treatments that may help with this. Vitiligo is our next one. It's believed to be attributed to an autoimmune disease, but the cause isn't really known. You get these patches of depigmented skin of different sizes. So instead of hyperpigmentation, we get uh, hypopigmentation. So it's like these really white patches. Uh, again, they're different sizes. They're well demarcated. They typically only affect one area of the body, like the extremities, the feet, or the hands. I know about three or four people in my life I've seen with this, just as in common contact, not in the office. Uh, so it's, it is relatively common, and they have well-defined irregular borders. Clinical diagnosis, normally here, a woods lamp may be helpful. Uh, probably not necessary, but may, might help. Treatment, UVB light therapy, narrow band ultraviolet light. Uh, ultraviolet light with cerulean, which makes the skin more susceptible to the light, may help. That's P-U-V-A, PUVA. Melanocyte transplant, so you're actually just going to try and darken up that skin. And then the last one here is going to be camouflage it. So if it bothers the patient from a uh, social standpoint, you can camouflage it with like makeup, or you can do some things to depigment the surrounding skin to, to lighten it up surrounding the area so the lines aren't so well demarcated so that it doesn't, it's not so, quite so noticeable. And that brings us to the end of our discussion for dermatology for today. I don't want to cover too much in one day. I just think it's, uh, I, I know some of you want to go through the podcast one after another and 
<clears throat> find that really helpful. But I think it, it's also helpful to have well demarcated shows that only cover a certain amount of information that helps it stick in your brain. I think running through a ton of stuff is like sitting in class and eventually your eyes glaze over and it's not all that helpful anymore. I'd rather cover a little bit of information and have you really nail it and feel like you remember it and this show sort of stands out for one reason or another to you and you can hold on to it. So this week we covered onchomyelosis, perinicchia, alopecia, melasma, and vitiligo. These aren't difficult topics and I don't think you're going to see tons of them on your test. In fact, you won't see tons of them on your test. We all know dermatology is what, like 4 or 5% of the exam. It's not very much. If you can pick these out, I think the treatments are sort of secondary here, but if you can pick them out based off of the descriptions, I think you'll be able to nail this section. I don't think it's a super uh, difficult one, but I also think it's an easy one to remember and to get right. Let's look at our study tip for today. So as I was just talking about here, what I would be thinking as I'm studying it is how do I describe these? Not necessarily how do I treat them, but how do I describe them? Because I feel like the treatments are not that complicated. They sort of go along with what you're, if you think a little bit about what the the disorder actually is, then the treatments aren't complicated to get to, right? I mean, if I have a perinicchia, I'm going to get the pus out of it and I'm going to give an antibiotic because it's a nail bed infection. Not a, you know what I mean? If I've got a fungal infection, I'm going to give an antifungal. Right, so the, the, it's not a big jump, and you don't have to memorize the names. I don't think of your antifungals for the exam. I I wouldn't. I think that's too much, too deep. I don't think you're going to need to go there. Knowing you need an antifungal, sure, that's that's relevant. Knowing you need itraconazole, meh, not maybe, maybe. Um, but I wouldn't spend the time on it. <clears throat> Different for your medicine exams and your school, obviously, but for the pans or the panry, I think that's a little deeper than you need to be. For vitiligo, once I know that it's these white uh, hyper hypopigmented patches. And there's no great uh, treatments. I, I don't think there's anything I need to remember there. And I think I could come up with anything I would find in a multiple choice test. So you want to look at these as you go through any test question, or I'm sorry, anything you're studying, thinking about what could they ask me and what do I need to know? Don't just memorize everything because it's on the paper. That's silly. There's way too many words there. And then they're just words you're trying to memorize. And then you wonder why you can't remember them. It's very, very difficult to do that and hold on to anything. It's really hard. So what I want you to start thinking about more and more is being a smarter studier. I got to come up with a better term for that. Uh, someone who thinks when they study. They don't just memorize words. They don't just highlight things and keep moving. What am I going to study for onchomycosis? Uh, I don't know. I probably don't need to study anything. I've seen it before. I know what it looks like. I'm not going to spend any time whatsoever on that. Perinicchia, I now have a good story for it, so I remember it really well. Up until then, I really didn't. But I would study that it's a, an infection of the periungal area. It's really painful, which would help me remember all the other things about it being red and swollen. And I would try to attach it to a staph infection so that I could know that I'm going to use uh, anti-staph antibiotics like cephalaxin. What would I do for alopecia? Probably nothing. Um, what do I need to know there that I don't already know from my everyday life, uh, minoxidil 5% solution applied BID because I don't use it. So other than that, there's not much there that I would really need to remember. I'm going to think that any question that comes up on alopecia, I could probably get right with just the knowledge in my head. What would I study for melasma? I would definitely know that group it affects pregnant females. I would know that there are dark brown areas of hyperpigmentation on the face of pregnant females or pregnant aged females 
<laughs> females who uh, are within childbearing age, right? Though that I would re remember. I might remember that. Uh, well, how would I write if I were going to write a question that would say something about melasma and the treatment for it? I would want to remember that. Okay, so maybe I could remember sun the sun affects it. Maybe I could remember that if I once I'm not pregnant anymore. So I want to have reassurance for people. But outside of that, nothing really works that well. So I don't know that I need to remember about the topical steroids, the chemical peels, or the laser treatments. Like it's sort of good to know. But if they're not definitive treatments, they're not going to ask you about them on the on the pants. For vitiligo, what do I need to know? I get these deep pigmented patches of skin on the arms. That's really it. I mean, what else are you going to learn there? What else are they going to ask you about? They're going to ask you, they're going to have a patient come in and you're going to have to diagnose it. I can't see anything happening beyond that. So when I study, one of the reasons I, I talk about being able to study faster and get things done quicker is because you're looking at that information in a different way. I'm not memorizing all of the data here, right? I'm just memorizing the things that will stand out and help me on the exam. All right, let's wrap up with our priming questions for this morning. Of course, I don't know what time it is when you're listening to this, but for me, it's this morning. What medical term for, what's the medical term for a fungal infection of a toenail? Medical term for a fungal infection of a toenail, think it through. You definitely know this. Onchomycosis. Are the patches of skin affected in vitiligo well demarcated? Yep. What is... What group is most commonly affected by melasma? You, if you haven't been listening at all, you might get this wrong. Pregnant females or females taking oral contraception. All right, awesome. Uh, we just finished up. We're moving our way through dermatology. Thank you so much for sticking with me. And that's it for today. So good luck on your exams. If you haven't reached out to me, let me know when you pass. I love to hear those stories. So definitely, definitely do that. And if you haven't done so, please go over, hop on the email uh, on the website. It is where I do most of the work as far as study tips, tricks, how to get better at basically the whole game is through the email list. The content is for the podcast, but all of that stuff definitely goes out through the email list. I email every single day with all kinds of tips and tricks and ways to improve your study skills and that sort of thing. So definitely go over and hop on that. Uh, super valuable. Take care. Good luck. And I will talk to you soon. Good luck.